Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Generations Today. I like that. That was a good waking up song there. A couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we celebrated one year ago. We officially and legally and completely adopted our little daughter. And so that was, we celebrated that. That was wonderful. We celebrated, we uh, rewarded ourselves by adopting another little family member, a dog. <laughs> For the first time in 17 years, the Hale family has a, a pet, a puppy. So that's been lots of fun. What they didn't tell us was adopting a little puppy, just so little, is like having a brand new baby. You, uh, you don't sleep anymore. So... Uh, so I like having those wake-up songs. Those are good because, yeah, we're on like four or five hours of sleep a night, and that's, that's lots of fun too. But it's good. He's, he makes up for it by just being so cute, you know. They know it. They know how to be cute. Well, it's good to see everybody here. Those of you joining us by live stream, welcome to you. Uh, my name's Scott, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, and one of our pastors here. And I'm excited today we are continuing our series, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Faith. Today we get a real double header of heroes awesome characters, because our story begins with a, a woman named Deborah we're going to look at, but our tale takes a surprise twist turn towards the very ends, and it ends at the hands of another woman named Jael. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Judges chapter 4. If you want to follow along on your very own, we'll have scriptures on screen too, but there's a couple places where it might be interesting to you to be able to read for yourself what we're talking about. Let me say this, if you know this story ahead of time a little bit and you're maybe a little concerned because of the situation that we're in, we, you know, we're running a one-room schoolhouse here with all the kids and the moms and the dads and everybody all in the same room and we love it and that's awesome. But it does put a bit of a seatbelt on the words that I say just to be wise. And so I will be giving a slightly edited uh, account later on to a rather vividly violent scene in the story. And so I allow you to go into more detail as you wish with your very own children this week in your own home devotionals as you like. Okay. Speaking of that, let me, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating that some of the, uh, you know, some of these stories that we read in the Old Testament especially are, are very, are violent. And it's important to remember they, they reflect the brutal culture of, in this case, 1200 BC Near East Iron Age people. And so it can be shocking to our modern eyes as we read and we realize in a lot of ways it seems like there's really no difference between the Israelites and their pagan neighbors when it comes to uh, their capacity for war, for violence, for, for cruelty and suffering. And it can be unsettling. And I say it should be unsettling. It should be because we're Christians. And as Christians, uh, we are called to have a different attitude toward issues of violence and peace and war and how we treat our enemies. There's something wrong if we don't have a different attitude. The Israelites were given no such calling. It's so important to remember that they did not have a fully formed consciousness yet of who God was completely, what His nature was fully. Um, they didn't know Jesus. Even though they worshiped Yahweh, uh, their understanding of Him was pretty primitive. Think back to when they were uh, rescued from Egypt. The slaves, Israel, were rescued from Egypt. They were brought out into the desert, and the one of the first things they decided to do was to celebrate and worship God by building a golden calf. They thought He'd be pleased by that. He wasn't. But they didn't know that yet. 
we've mentioned before how Israel, at one time, a lot of Israelites thought God had a wife, Asherah, and they worshiped Him. It's in the Scriptures. They worshiped the, the wife of God, Asherah. Most importantly, though, they did not know God in the person of Jesus. I can't stress that enough. They did not know God in the person of Jesus. They didn't know about the God who gives His life to save ours. That's huge. They didn't know about the Christ who says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They haven't grown that far. Um, So when you read a story like this, as we read today, and they go to war, and there's a lot of blood and guts and violence and genocide, and they do it all in the name of Yahweh, God seems to give His approval in the story, and it makes you a little uncomfortable good, right? It, It should make you a little uncomfortable. It's natural if you're paying attention and if you're taking the words of Jesus seriously for us to read these older stories and sort of wince a little bit, like, man, what are they thinking? Because as Christians, we have been incomparably blessed to know, to be introduced to God in the person of Jesus Christ, who doesn't come, you know, He doesn't come to uh, kick rear and take names, as they say. He comes to save the lost. He comes to restore all broken things. He comes to forgive the enemy. It's why we call salvation uh, uh, an example of restorative justice. Restorative justice. God wants to restore all things. He even wants to restore the people broken in their sin. He even wants to restore, you know, those, those people who are not yet serving Him. And this is in contrast to the Old Testament where we have you could call it retributive justice, retributive justice. You're not healed from your sin, you're punished for your sin until you're sorry. And if God liked you and you, or you behaved well, you won the war, right? And if He didn't like you or you were born in the wrong camp, you were slaughtered. Um, under retributive justice, you believed that, that you needed to make sacrifices to God to make Him like you. Well, praise God, Jesus came to reveal a God who actually made Himself the sacrifice so that we would fall in love with Him. Do you see how different that story is? He made Himself the sacrifice. We call this spiritually maturing. Even as all of us individually and as, as we walk along in our life, we're spiritually maturing, hopefully, more and more to God. We as a people are spiritually maturing, and this is why Jesus is so radical. It's why Christianity, I, got, I say over and over, it, it is not just an extension of the Old Covenant. It's not. It is revolutionary. You could say this is an evolutionary leap forward in our relationship with God and our understanding of who He is. And so, here's what we don't want to make the mistake of making, which sadly uh, some evangelicals today do. We don't want to make this mistake, and that is reading these old covenant stories and our takeaway being, well, and praise God, He'll help us defeat the ungodly people who are standing in our way too. See, that would be misreading the purpose of these stories for us. That would be practicing what I call old covenant Christianity. I don't know if you've heard that term. I think I made it up. I'm sure somebody else has said it too. Old covenant Christianity, it's a contradiction in terms, right? It's this nonsensical sort of grotesque amalgamation of of salvation, New Testament salvation with Old Testament barbarism, greed, xenophobia, and cruelty. And... um, when I look back, on, we can look back today. We can, you know, if we're being honest, as, as the church, 
you know, we can critique ourselves. We can look back on the sins of the church over the last 2,000 years, and that's been done exhaustively, right? And, and we could pretty much point to every single one of those times as a time when we have, we have looked to the Old Testament for permission or validation of our greed, our human greed. We say, well, look at the Old Testament, or, or our need for conquest, our need to control and to have power. We can say, look to the Old Testament. It's really, really simple for us. It should be very simple. Jesus instructs us how to read the Old Testament Scriptures. And what does He do? He says to, to find the signs in the story, however hidden, however buried, find the signs pointing to Him. We're looking for glimpses of Jesus in all of these stories. So that, I just want to make that kind of caveat before we start today because it's very important. The last thing I want to do is, is get into these stories, and these are awesome stories. You know, if, you're like, if you like movies like Braveheart and Star Wars and that kind of stuff, then these are great stories, and I like them too. But it's, it would be, oh, just such a tragedy if we walked away from this, and mistakenly I gave you the idea that let's go conquer our enemies too, because that's not what Jesus says, right? That's Old Testament Christianity. All right, we're on the same page, hopefully. Here we go. Um, I think what we're going to find today, in fact, I think this is a beautiful story because underneath the, the violence, what we're going to see revealed with the benefit of our Jesus hindsight, we kind of put on our Jesus glasses, and what we're going to see revealed is a glimpse of a merciful, patient, kind, and loving God who does not give up on His people. It's about a story about standing up for the oppressed and trusting that God will do what He has promised to do, and I think that's what we're going to find today. So, here we go. Let me see if you're in, you have your Bibles, you're in uh, Genesis chapter… No, sorry, that's going way too far back. Uh, Judges. It's the book of Judges, chapter 4. Um, and just to kind of set the scene, if this were uh, Star Wars, um, here's what the little crawl would start off. You know, the dun da da dun da dun da dun da dun The Canaanite Empire strikes back. Here we go. Once again, Israel finds herself under siege uh, with no king to lead her, no priest or prophet to keep her from sliding into idol worship. Who will hear their cry and save her from total destruction? Down. And then we pan down to the planet, and there we go. All right. Basically, this is how every chapter in Judges begins, with this same <laughs> sad story, this same repetitive thing. We, we talked a few weeks ago, remember we looked at the book, uh, the story of Gideon in Judges. He was one of the judges of Israel. Uh, and once again, today we're going to see Israel finds herself in the same spot. This time, it is the Canaanites who are harassing the Israelites. And it turns out they've been doing this for about 20 years at this point. Um, the Canaanites are this big, powerful uh, military superpower. They steal everything they want from the Israelites. They run through the country and kidnap their women and burn their crops. If this sounds like a familiar story. We just talked about this two weeks ago, but it was the Amalekites, right? It's a different, it was a different superpower. Um, the Canaanites now are interesting because they have a, uh, they have nearly a thousand iron chariots prowling the main roads and highways. These are like the tanks of the day. This is like the biggest weapon you could possibly have. This is like having all the the fighter jets and the SAM missiles, right? Iron chariots, and, the, and these are, these are powerful things. Um, and the roads in Israel, it talks about in, in other places, have become so dangerous that the Israelites have basically deserted. They don't walk on the highways or the roads anymore. They travel around sneaking through the countryside. And one passage says that the Israelites have no weapons because the Canaanites won't allow them to manufacture weapons. So they're, they're basically defenseless. They can't fight back. Uh, they have no defenses. There's no walled cities. Uh, and they have no real hope. Now, why is this happening? 
because we are told once again they did evil in the eyes of God, they turned to false gods and idols, and so God is allowing them to get desperate enough to turn back to Him. We're also told here, right in the middle of your screen there, a name that we'll want to remember for later in our story, Sisera. He's our bad guy today, Sisera. He's, he's the Darth Vader character in our, in our movie, the leader of the Canaanite armies. We'll come back to him. He's in charge of all those hundreds of iron chariots. But Israel finally does cry out, as they do. They get desperate enough to finally turn to God. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't wait till we hit the very bottom before we turn to God and just like turn to Him every single day? That would be great. That's what He wants. But they finally hit rock bottom. They turn to God, and as always, He hears their cry. He keeps, even after they've cheated on Him with false gods, that's the way the Scriptures tell us that God views it, like, like unfaithfulness. They've cheated on it. But He turns back. And remember what we've learned throughout forever, when God has a plan, what's the very next thought that seems to come to God's mind? Who can I work with to bring this plan together? God always says, who can I work with? That's how God always works. It's how He worked in the Bible. It's how He's still working today. Who can I work with? Because God is intensely relational, right? Um, he, he, so, what does He do? He raises up another mighty leader, uh, one of the 12 judges during these 350 year or so period of Israel's before the times of the kings, you know, David and all those great guys. But before that, there was 350 years, there was 12, a succession of 12 judges, one after the other. And so he raises up one of these judges, but this judge is different because this judge was a woman. That is a big deal. This is the first and only judge Israel would ever have who was a woman. Not only that, but she is a prophet She is the only judge who is also a prophet. This is cool stuff, right? This is one cool lady. And of course, we remember, we talked about Israel's pretty patriarchal culture, so that's a big deal. So it says that what she would do is sit under a palm tree uh, near her home, which was kind of the ancient equivalent of a courthouse and uh, a place where people would come and they'd they needed to get a dispute settled, she would listen and, you know, decide. Or sometimes they needed spiritual guidance because she was a recognized prophet, so she would offer guidance in that way. She was known as somebody who spoke with authority, who heard from God. Over in chapter 5, uh, she's referred to as a sort of mother figure for Israel. And so, uh, by the way, do you ever just like wake up or like hear the news and you're like, man, America needs a mom right now. We need like someone to come and like give us a hug, spank our butt, give us some vegetables or something. I don't know. That, you know, we like, need a mom. So I don't know. Um, that's not a spiritual thing. That's just me. Uh, what, uh, well, apparently God knew Israel. Uh, this was a time in her life when she needed uh, a mother to be in charge for a while. And her story is told in a really unique way here in the Bible. It's told twice. The story of Deborah is told twice. It's told in chapter 4, which we'll mostly be looking at today, and that's the traditional narrative format, the storytelling format. And then it's repeated in chapter 5 poetically. The same story is repeated in the form of what we call a victory hymn, and it's known as the Song of Deborah. And both accounts contain interesting details, so sometimes we'll refer to different, different chapters to grab some interesting details. Well, in our story, one day... All this is going on. Israel's being oppressed. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing anybody can do about it. Deborah sends for a man named Barak. Remember his name. And, and tells him that God has heard their cry and it is time to act. 
God has promised to give Israel the victory. She tells Barak, it's time. She's a smart lady. She hasn't said, let's just, you know, let's just go fight them. And, you know, they would lose. But when God speaks, then she says, now it's time. She tells Barak to lead the army and to find 10,000 soldiers. Now, there are no soldiers. There is no professional standing army of Israel right now. So what he's asking for, she's asking to find 10,000 volunteers, 10,000 farmers. And she's saying, I know we're outgunned. I know we're outmanned but I got a word from the Lord. So I want you to gather as many troops as we have, and let's do this. And what, is, what does Barak say? Only if you go with me. Only if you go with me. I love, <laughs> I like this. Um, he says, he says that, now this is a pretty gutsy thing to, to say to your commander-in-chief who's just given you an order, right? Uh, if you go, I'll go, but if you're not going, I'm out right? Can you imagine like, you know, one of the joint chiefs like saying that to a president today, you know, when he says like invade a country, only if you go with us, <laughs> right? Now there's a couple of things happening here um, and scholars have poured over his words. There's so much commentary on, on this statement from Barack, but it really comes down to two things. Number one, number one, Barack is scared. He's, he's not a fool, right? And who wouldn't be scared? He knows a suicide mission when he hears it. And, you know, hey, Brock, we don't have any professional soldiers or any weapons, really, other than whatever our farmers have hidden in the barn, you know, like a pitchfork or two. Uh, But let's go and you lead the charge against 900 iron tanks. Yay, it'll be great, right? But there's a second thing going on here, and this is, I think, really beautiful. At first, it might look like a sign of, of disrespect to sort of give her this ultimatum, what it actually is revealing here is how much Barak sees Deborah, the way the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant, that she embodies the very presence and power of God. See, the Israelites, they would have remembered all the stories. They would have told all those great stories of old, of when they went into battle, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Whenever they had the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God there, they would win, right? Or the story of, of Moses, he'd be up on the hill, and as long as his hands were raised, they would fight good, and they would win. And, you know, if he wasn't there, or the Ark wasn't there, they would lose. And so they would have these stories in their mind. And Barak has so much respect for this woman here, that what he's doing is saying, I will only go to war if you are there, the person who I know is filled with the Spirit of God, right? Because if God isn't with us, we're on our own, and we don't stand a chance. This is what Barak is saying. If God is not with us, we don't stand a chance. Barak sees Deborah as a symbol of God's presence and power. And I love Deborah's response. In verse 9, she doesn't hesitate. She's like, yeah, I'm in. All right, let's go. Clearly, you, you, uh, you need a, a motherly touch to go with you today, right? So let's do this. But, she says, you won't get to have the honor of winning this victory. That honor will go down in history as belonging to a woman, which Brock probably assumes she's referring to herself. And he seems fine with that, right? And so De- Deborah and Barack together, they go they round up 10,000 farmers to grab all the pitchforks and knives and spoons they have, whatever they're using, whatever they sharpened, you know, underneath the bed. And they launch their attack, and the Lord gives them a miraculous victory, right? Bet you didn't see that coming at all. The Lord, what? Yeah, it's in the Bible, so of course they got the victory. Oh, now how did they defeat 900 
iron chariots. It turns out these chariots are great for, for what they were meant to do. Iron chariots of the day, they were, like I said, they were like the tanks, Sherman tanks or something like that. And, and they, were, they were so big and powerful, they would just mow anything down in front of them. And uh, like it, I was reading, uh, no, no, no I, was, I was watching a, a special on the history, war history, and they were talking about the Egyptians. The Egyptians used these uh, wooden chariots, and the wooden chariots were real lightweight and nimble and fast, and they could turn really quickly, and so that's what the Egyptians favored. Well, the Canaanites favored the heavy chariots, right? These things, nothing's going to stop them. They're not, nothing's going to slow them. They're just going to go right through everything. It turns out they're great when rolling like thunder across, you know, the, an open field or a hard-packed desert or something like that. They turn into a huge problem in rain, and that's what, that's what suddenly happened. This was not the time for rain, but all of a sudden in the, there, there's a, a rainstorm and it says wind and hail are flying in their face and, and the, the ground turns to just quicksand and their wheels just sink, these heavy chariots just sink into the mud, making them sitting ducks. Oh, and the river suddenly has a flash flood and overflows its banks and wipes out the rest of the army. So, so it's, God sends this flash flood and it's just total rout. And the battle itself doesn't even get more than just a, a couple of verses mentioned. It's over so quickly. However, one man escapes. Remember our evil bad guy, right? Darth Sisera. He escapes. He run- this is some great commander, right? All of his men are getting slaughtered, and he's just like running as fast as he can away from the battle. He runs for miles. He just takes off. He cuts and runs, and he comes across this Bedouin tribe called the Kenites. The Kenites were a people, they weren't Israelites, but they were allies of the Canaanites. And uh, these Kenites were known as metal workers. In fact, the Kenites, they believe, some of the scholars believe that the Kenites probably were allied uh, for good reason because the, the Canaanites were iron, had the iron chariots. So the Kenites probably did a lot of making of it. And they might have been in this area at the time to probably give backup support, you know, make repairs on their chariots as the battle's going on, that kind of thing. So this is a great line of work to be in if you're a Kenite, uh, to, to be allied with the Canaanites. So Sisera, he's running and he comes across this Kenite uh, camp. Now, he's fully expecting to find allies there and to, you know, this is, should be a friendly welcome. Uh, it turns out the husband of the camp is not there for some reason. Some people believe he's probably off at the battle, like to help out. Um, but his wife comes out, who is left at the camp, his wife comes out to greet him, and her name is Jael. And she says, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. And so he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. So it says, so, so the the husbands and the wives would have different tents back then, the husband and the wife or wives, because, um, you know, sometimes you just need some spice. And so the wife had her tent. So she invites him into her tent, says, uh, it makes him nice and comfy. He says, I need a drink of water. What did she give him? Warm milk and cookies, basically. Um, it, it, that's the equivalent. It's milk and curds, and it would have been kind of this really comforting, but sort of healthy yogurty type stuff. It would have filled his stomach and quench his thirst, but make him nice and sleepy. Um, and then it says she covers him with a blanket. That's probably not to keep him warm. That's probably because he wanted to hide in case someone came by. So that's probably to hide him. Um, and he asked her to guard the door, right? In case any of those Israelites come. Guard the door. And if someone asks for him, he'd just lie and say, you haven't seen me. So he's nice and comfy. And Sisera falls asleep. And then what occurs 
And verse 21 is one of the most graphically described murders in the Hebrew Scriptures, which I'll leave for you to read the rest on your own this week in case it might disturb your kids. Um, my kids, it's their favorite verse in the Bible, but we're a weird bunch. So just <laughs> one, one of the things uh, that I noticed just this week too, rereading this story, is the similarities here between Jael and the story of David and Goliath. Um, when you think about it, both of them, Jael and David, were both uh, it says, you know, they're both physically weaker, uh, smaller than their opponent. Um, they both employ unusual weapons. Remember, David had the sling. They both use their wits rather than traditional military strategy here. And let's say they both aim for the head. We'll put it that way. Um, so, kind of some similarities there. So, just moments after doing this, J.L. walks outside her tent, and she flags down Barak, who's riding up He's in hot pursuit of Sisera, and she directs him to her tent where he would, will find the man that he'd been chasing dead. And thus was Deborah's prophecy brought to pass, that a woman would receive the honor of defeating the enemy Sisera. It turned out not to be Deborah at all. Of course, it's the unexpected character here out of nowhere, J.L., now, a lot of this brings up questions for me, like, why did Jael do this? Why would Jael do this? She wasn't an Israelite. We'll talk about that in just a second. But first, I want to look at a couple of take-home lessons from this story. The first one is, the, the hugest one is that God uses ordinary people in surprising ways. I mean, that's really what our whole series is all about, God using ordinary people in surprising ways. Think about Deborah. She's this, she, for all we know, she's an ordinary woman in the ancient Near East, She's of this tiny Israelite tribe of Ephraim. Did you even know there was an Israelite tribe of Ephraim, right? You know, we know about the lion of the tribe of Judah, but you don't hear much about the, you know, the, the squirrel of Ephraim or anything. We don't know her, we don't know about, much about Ephraim. We don't know Deborah's lineage. Who's her father? We don't know because she was a woman. They don't record it if you're a woman. They only, you know, you only get the son of, the son of, and the father of. So we don't know who her family was. We know she's married to an otherwise unremarkable guy named Lapidith. We don't know anything else about him. But God needed someone ordinary at this time of Israel's history who had extraordinary faith to be used in surprising ways. Deborah, uh, her name means honeybee. I love that. I guess Melissa's. That's what Melissa's name means. Um, honeybee. And she becomes this prophet. She becomes a judge respected throughout the land for her wisdom and her courage. She helps rally a volunteer Israelite force and a reluctant general, Barak, you know, to fight this professional army twice their size. And she goes to war with them. She's courageous. Oh, and she turns out to be quite the singer-songwriter. Chapter 5 is called The Song of Deborah, and she writes all of that. And then there's Jael. Jael, who is a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's a housewife, a tent maker, and is apparently not too squeamish around blood. <laughs> And she probably changes the course of history with what? A, a tent stake and a hammer. What, how is she able to do that? Because that's the normal everyday tools that she would have been working with all her life. That was the tools available to her. The, the Bedouin tribes like hers were the ones, uh, in, in those Bedouin tribes, the women were the ones responsible for putting up and taking down the tents when they would move. And, and it's still true today. The women often, that was kind of, tent making was considered women's work back then. And um, Jael uses the tools of the trade, typical for a Kenite housewife to do something way out of the box of what would be expected of her. 
And Jael breaks a lot of rules here. I think it's interesting. I'm reading this story, and it, she, she, number one, she breaks this, uh, there's this deeply important rule of Middle Eastern hospitality you've probably heard about. It's still recognized today that protecting the life of your house guest was, was considered so important. And we see evidence in the Bible, there's stories where your house guest, you put his life above even your own family. Sometimes they would risk their own family's lives to protect the house guest's well-being. Uh, also, she acts clearly in opposition to her tribe, to her husband's social, political alliances. Um, despite this treaty that they had with the Canaanite king, Jael acts out of her own convictions. There's something about her convictions here that takes charge. And she knows, as, as someone who would have been living in that region, she knows firsthand what the Israelites have suffered over the years at the hands of the Canaanites. And Jael chooses to deliver justice. It's a retributive justice, but it's justice to the Israelites. Her response goes against what we would think of as political leanings. It goes against patriotic leanings. It goes against family loyalties. She holds Israel's oppressor accountable for what they've done, even though she and hers haven't been the people who have been oppressed. She's allied with the people of power, right? She's got an in with the good crowd, and she allies with the people who have been oppressed. She holds them accountable for what they've done, and she delivers a verdict that was loudly proclaimed that she was on the side of Israel. Why? Because Jael was on the side of justice. Jael was on the side of justice. This Gentile woman was praised as a hero to the Israelites over in chapter 5. It's a beautiful song, um, very poetic. And she sung about there, as most blessed of women and most blessed of her, her people. God uses ordinary people to do surprising things in surprising ways if they will only put their faith in Him and be willing to step out when justice, justice demands it. But I also don't want to, I don't want to turn this into just sort of a, um, like a, you know, a feminist, uh, you know, women can do a man's job type of thing, because that's not the point of the story. Yes, women are in this story, are, do, they do amazing things, they do a heroic job of sort of transcending the, the limitations that their culture placed on them. But for us, if you go to generations and you're still here and you haven't left yet, you're, you're probably fully aware we're on the same page of the equality of men and women. Um, and so this is an inspiring challenge. This story is an inspiring challenge to all of us, men and women, to all of us, men and women. You don't need to compare yourself to other people or compete with other people to do what God has called you to do. Are you hearing me? I'm talking to men and women, boys and girls. You don't have to compare yourself to or compete with other people to do what God has called you to do. Deborah does not do a man's job. She does Deborah's job. She does Deborah's job. It's the job that God gave Deborah to do. She leads Israel. She directs her military leader. She's a spiritual mother to the whole country. Jael doesn't do a man's job. She does Jael's job. She lures the bad guy in. She gives him some milk and cookies and attaches him permanently to the floor. <laughs> Barak, the Israelite general. I like this guy. How, how about his faith in the word of God that came through Deborah? He gets overlooked sometimes in the story, but he's a, this is a man of great faith, great courage to, to go into battle against overwhelming odds. And kudos for him for following a woman. I like this guy, right? 
And, and you know what else? It never actually, I think I called him a general early. The Bible never actually calls him General Barak. It doesn't say he has any military training. For all we know, he's like Deborah's assistant. He just might be a scribe. He's like the bailiff in the court. Like, next, who's our next case? Uh, Smith versus Jones. Okay. And then one day she's like, uh, Barack, put down the notepad and go to war. <laughs> Which would probably explain why his first response was like, so what now? <laughs> um, are you going? So it doesn't even say he's a military guy. He's just the guy she chose. An ordinary guy who steps out in faith to do surprising things. So whoever you are, whether you're a man or a woman, you don't need to worry about being as good as someone else. That will make you crazy. If you, you know what I mean? You don't need to be worried about that. Just do what God has called you to do with the tools that he's placed in your hand. What are the tools that have been placed in your hand? Do what God's called you to do with it, and do it in a way that only you can, because He has uniquely gifted you. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. God doesn't look and say, there's a man, or there's a woman, or there's a black person, or a white person, or a brown person. He doesn't see that. He says, there's James, there's Melissa, right? There's John East, there's Neely. I can use that person. I can use him or her. I can use that person. So be bold, be strong, be courageous. Be discerning, be wise, be you. Because he called you, not because of all the attachments or categorizations you think of yourself as. He called you because you're you. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the, the book of Judges, it's a... Uh, it can be barbaric. It's, it's violent. I heard one preacher describe it. He said, um, it's almost like you can hear the writer of Judges chapter after chapter growing weary with the endless cycle of the people did evil in the sight of God. The people did evil in the sight of God. Then they were punished for it. Then they fought off their oppressors. And then the land had rest and everybody was happy for 40 years until they did evil again in the sight of God. And then they did evil in the sight again and again and again over and over. And the people go to war. They keep going to war. That seems to always be the answer. They go to war. Lots of people die in a battle. Wash, rinse, repeat. And it's going to happen again in the next chapter and the next chapter. And yet today, we are so blessed to see the bigger picture. I can't imagine what that was like to live through that, that sort of endless cycle of violence. But we can see the bigger picture here that God is making and we see this picture made clear through Jesus, that, that violence really is futile. It really is. It may look like it, saves to, it, it solves today's problems, right? Somebody's attacking, get rid of them. Okay, boom, problem solved today, but tomorrow it starts all up again. And without an injection of something supernatural, it just repeats and repeats and repeats. The, the pastor uh, writer, Brian Zant, he's, he's said that violence and war are America's secular religion. That's America's secular religion, is violence and war. And every few years, we have to sacrifice some more blood on the altar of that. And without grace and mercy and understanding why Jesus came, not just, not just grace and mercy from God for us, but also for each other, we, we get stuck in this violence, this cycle of violence. And I really think the book of Judges is a manifesto to the, the futility of violence 
the hardness, Jesus called it the hardness of our heart. He said, you're allowed to, to do these things because of the hardness of your heart. But it's also a manifesto of God's willingness to stick with us while we are growing, while we grow up to our need for redemptive grace and restorative justice. When I read the story of Deborah, what I find is a God who is patient, merciful, forgiving, and loving. Over and over and over, God does not turn His back on His people. The people who keep betraying Him, the good guys in this story are the people who keep betraying God. And God leans in. And, and yes, he, he patiently, I, I'm not God, so I can't imagine what's going on in his heart. I can only imagine that it grieved him. But he patiently accommodates the violent nature of that world for a while longer before revealing his perfect will for us in the person of Jesus. His will for us to, to win over our enemies with love instead of violence. He rescues the Israelites from their physical enemies at the time so that eventually the world will know the God who wants to rescue all the nations from the one true enemy, which is Satan. Now, I'm going to be honest. If I'm God, I'm like, at what point did he feel like enough was enough? I mean, it's that whole 70 times 7, you know, how many times do I got to forgive? At what point are, are you, you read the book of Judges, and are you, do you think, oh, they finally crossed the line, right? And again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God raised up a judge to, and saved them. And they had peace for 40 years, but again, they forgot who their daddy was. Again and again. Like, at what point are you God? And you're like, people, how are you not getting this, right? How are you not understanding this? But what you find in Judges is a picture of, of a surprising God. It's a glimpse of a God. This isn't just one of those moody gods of, of that era who, who gets angry and gives up on the people. This is the father God with a mother's heart. He comes in again and again and again and again and says, and says yep, come to me. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, I will rescue you. Yes, it's called unconditional love. And he's modeling for Israel this unconditional love that says, I will not give up on you. I will not give up on you. These people repeat the same blooming mistake every generation. And it's as if the whole point of these stories is showing us how patient this God is. It's, not, it's definitely not about how great the Israelites are but how patient and loving, how merciful he is, how forgiving. This is a God, too, who understands that real spiritual growth and maturity doesn't happen overnight. Real spiritual growth and maturity doesn't happen overnight. And listen, some of you need to hear this, because I, 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 know, I know some of you, I don't know all of you, but I know some of you, what, what you're going through. Some of you need to hear this. You need to show yourself some grace, people. Show yourself some grace. Some of you are incredibly too hard on yourself. You don't often hear your preacher telling you this. You're too hard on yourself. You're like, I don't understand why I haven't, heard my why I haven't learned my lesson. It took Israel a thousand years before they were ready for Jesus to reveal the concept of real grace and they killed him for it. 
It wasn't until Jesus that the human race was ready to learn that killing your enemy is not actually the goal of the righteous man. It took a thousand years. I mean, hey, it's taken us another 2,000 years just to figure out that slavery was evil. It's just possible, just maybe, it will take you a bit of time to grow up, okay? To become spiritually complete as your Father desires for you. Now, I get it. Some of you, th- and some of you are like, well, some people don't even try, right? They don't, they're, only, they're not even trying to grow up. For them, grace is just an excuse to act like an idiot. I get that. And God gets that. But for you, for a lot of us, for Pete's sake, just breathe. Take a beat. And stop beating yourself up because Jesus already took the beating. Amen? You are forgiven. You are forgiven. That's what the guy who hung on that cross said to us. You're forgiven. So do you have some room to grow up? Yes, I bet you do. I do too. We both do. We're, both, we're human. We have room to grow. What if instead, crazy thought, what if instead of, of whipping yourself and feeling condemned or acting out of that by judging others all the time, because I think that's really just comes from self-condemnation, what if instead you start seeing yourself like God does? And so the next time you run into something, you're like, man, I blew it again. Okay, true. Name it. True story. But you know what? The God of Israel, he didn't destroy the world even after 160 times of again they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he's not going to give up on you. He's not going to give up on you because you're his kid. See, it's different. You're his daughter. You're his son. You're his boy. You're his girl. He loves you. And he understands spiritual growth doesn't happen overnight. I believe the story of Deborah reveals a God whose greatest desire is to love his kids. His greatest desire is to forgive us and give us life abundantly and set us on the path that we were destined for. That's what he really wants. He wants his kids to grow up and to partner with him. That's what he wants. The God who longed to set Israel free from her bondage and whether that bondage was in the form of Canaanites or Malachites or her own just seeming addiction to idol worship, he longed to set them free from that. That same God wants to set you free from whatever's holding you back, whether it's a habit or an addiction or a piece of bigotry that just seems lodged in your brain, whether it's a hot temper you got or whether it's a fear of people and a shyness that just really gets in your way or whether it's just some wound, maybe a wound that was just inflicted years ago and it just won't scab up and go away. God wants to set you free. But never forget this. Never forget, people. While God is setting you free from your bondage, He also wants to partner with you to set others free. So you're, you're called for a purpose, and it's not just about you and God. You're called to be part of a body. You're called to be a light to the world. So he wants to partner with you to set others free. Even, yeah, even while he's still setting you free from your thing. Even while he wants to partner with you. He wants to speak through you like, like a Deborah to inspire other people. 
He wants to work through you like a, like a JL to stand up for justice, no matter who your family is, to be an ally. He wants you to step out in faith like a Barak and trust that He's going to bring the victory no matter what the odds are, that when God gives His Word, you can trust in that Word. So that leaves us with one final challenge, one final challenge. When you hear the cries of the oppressed, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord. I believe you're speaking to our hearts this morning. Almighty God, you're such a personal God. I know you're saying different things to different ones of us. You're talking to us as we need it. Lord, I thank you for those of us who who claim to be Christians, who claim to have Jesus as our foundation. Lord, give us the insight of your Holy Spirit to see ways that maybe we're holding back from rescuing other people, that we're allowing our fear or, or our comfort, our tradition, our worldviews, our expectations, whatever it is, to keep us from, from stepping out in surprising ways when the opportunity is right there in front of us, Lord. Challenge us, Lord, to, to find all those creative ways we can invest the, the, the stuff of our life into other people the everyday tools that you've given us. How can we invest that into others? Lord, I pray for those here today and maybe they wouldn't really call themselves a Christian exactly. Maybe they're they're not even certain what their foundation is or who their foundation is built on. Lord, as your Holy Spirit is speaking to each of us, just give them the courage to respond to Jesus, to begin building their life on that rock. In the name of the holy, resurrected Jesus, we pray. Amen. My friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his favor towards you and grant you peace in this day we're living in. Grace and peace, grace and peace.